Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move. And here's your need to know. Clotting concerns. More nations announced the temporary suspension of AstraZeneca's COVID vaccine. She squeezed. Beijing promises greater scrutiny of China's tech giants and electrifying expectations. Volkswagen shares surge on ambitious targets. We speak to the CEO later on the show. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move, where we're focused on reopening roadblocks in Europe as more nations suspend use of AstraZeneca's vaccine. The A to Z on the details of that coming right up. And from dosing delays in Europe to reflation rumblings in the United States, Goldman Sachs now saying that the U.S. economy will grow by 8% this year. Meanwhile, Bank of America's latest investor survey saying COVID no longer the number one market risk. Inflation and potential taper tantrums dominate as support gets pulled back. They highlight the biggest drop in tech exposure in 15 years, with investors piling into things like financials and energy stocks. And I can tell you Monday was all about the reflation stock trade with airlines, casinos and cruise lines all outperforming the Dow and the S&P hitting fresh records. And if you look at there, we were set to add to that today. Europe also shaking off that dosing drama with shares higher there too. Volkswagen, as I mentioned, one of the biggest winners, up more than 19%, as you can see, with investors well and truly electrified by news from its Battery Day event. CEO Herbert Dees will join us later to discuss their global EV vision. And there's EV Vroom in China, too, where Geely, China's biggest privately owned car brand, has announced plans to relocate or reallocate more than $4.5 billion on a new battery plant to boost their EV ambitions. So plenty of green shoots, let's call it, for clean energy today. There's also green on the screen in Asia, too. Big Chinese tech names looking relatively stable after Monday's losses, even as President Xi talks broader tech regulation for the first time ever. We've got all the details on that ahead too. But for now, let's get to the drivers and dosing dilemmas across Europe. This hour, the European medicines regulator will give an update on the safety of the AstraZeneca vaccine as more countries stop using it to look into reports of blood clots developing after vaccinations. It's the latest setback in Europe's struggle to bring COVID under control. Fred Pleitgen joins us now. Fred, nations like Germany, France, Italy, Cyprus, Luxembourg, Latvia, all suspending this vaccine temporarily, at least, until we hear from the regulators. What are we expecting? Fred, talk us through it. Some of those nations just making that decision today, some of them making that uh, late last night, and you can really feel one country after another uh, in the EU suspending the use of that vaccine. Now, as far as that briefing is concerned from the European uh, Medical Agency, that's going to be an update because the agency says 
that they're going to come up with uh, more data on Thursday. And that's when we expect that there could really be a decision on whether or not a blanket uh, in Europe uh, that AstraZeneca could be stopped or the use of AstraZeneca could be stopped in the uh, entire European Union. So certainly some very important times. And you're absolutely right. It comes at some of the worst times here in Europe for many of these European governments. You look at, for instance, Germany. AstraZeneca is absolutely central as Germany tries to get uh, its vaccination campaign on track. They started with these vaccination centers, never really had enough uh, vaccines to begin with. But now they said with AstraZeneca, they wanted to move all that into general practitioners offices to make sure that they could get more and more people vaccinated. All of that is now out the window here in Germany. And there are some who are criticizing the Germans' uh, decision Uh, the German medical agency's decision to stop the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine because so far there have been seven reports of blood clotting after that vaccine has been administered in 1.6 million doses that have been administered so far. And there's one medical expert that I heard just a couple of hours ago, and he was saying that right now this country really does not have a viable alternative to the use of AstraZeneca. So what you're saying is absolutely correct. It comes at a time that in many European countries, these vaccination campaigns are sputtering, not just true in Germany, but in other countries as well. And of course, what we've been watching is that cases have been on the rise also in many countries. So certainly a very difficult situation. All eyes really on the European medical uh, agency, uh, medicines agency, to see what sort of update they're going to give in this hour. And then especially on Thursday, what we're going to hear from them then. Julia? Yeah, I mean, the medical comparisons of that, you would expect to see three to four cases per million per year of such an issue in the general population. So it gives you a sense of perhaps how cautious people are being here about the risks potentially associated with this vaccine, of course. And to your point, nothing's been proven. I mean, we've seen, what, 318 million vaccine doses given now worldwide, and it's rapidly increasing. I'm perhaps more surprised that we haven't seen more safety alerts like this with the amount of caution and the concerns about trust and vaccine scepticism around the world. We just have to wait and see what the the regulators say. Yeah, well, that, that, and that's exactly, for instance, what AstraZeneca is saying. They're saying, look, these issues of blood clotting, that's something that happens in the general population, whether people are taking vaccines or not. And they say that the amount of cases that they've seen so far of these incidences of blood clots developing, which is a couple of dozen in these uh, European countries, they say it's not more uh, than would normally happen. The UK, of course, also saying from its experience, this is not something that's a, a, a major problem there. And they're continuing the use of the vaccine. So far, for instance, Belgium also been continuing the vaccine use uh, as well. But the European countries are saying right now, Germany and others, that with these incidences of that developing, it did happen in very close proximity to people taking that vaccine. And so they say they want to be absolutely sure that this vaccine does not have that danger. But of course, you're absolutely right that it's a major public trust issue. And that's been a problem around the AstraZeneca vaccine in the European Union to begin with. You had, for instance, countries like Germany, where at the beginning, the medical regulator here in this country only approved the AstraZeneca vaccine for people 65 and under. It took them several weeks to get to allow people over 65 to take it. And that actually increased some of the public trust in the vaccine, but now facing issues again with the Germans stopping it, other countries stopping it as well. So it is a major issue not just of getting these vaccination campaigns going, but then also of public trust in what is one of the most important vaccines, not just for Europe, but of course, worldwide, Julia. And that's the critical point. This is not just about Europe. This is the high hope for getting vaccines out to many poorer nations as well. 
Fred, we wait and see. Great to have you with us. So Fred Plyke in there. Thank you. All right, let's move on. The world needs $131 trillion of investment in green energy to cap global warming at one and a half degrees by 2050. That's according to the International Renewable Energy Agency. But it says the window for going green is closing fast. John Defteris joins us now. John, great to get your perspective on this. So how much more spending above current spending does that sum suggest and what's the saying where there's a will there's a way is there the will to ramp up spending to that degree just to keep things steady i can always count on you for the key questions here julie i'd say this is a call to arms by arena uh, because if you want to cap uh, global warming at 1.5 degrees centigrade you got to get a move on it where the world is behind the curve is the message here and i'd say there's kind of two key ingredients, it's scale and speed. And to your point, I'd add a third, and that's the political will to make this happen. So let's look at that number again, $131 trillion. And to add the context you were asking about, Julia, $4.4 trillion a year. That's uh, upscaling by 30%, according to uh, ARENA. And the idea is to redirect the money to the renewable sector. Uh, last year, during the stimulus packages, better than $4 trillion was spent on hydrocarbon-related sectors. And that doubled the amount of money, more than doubled the amount of money going into renewables during the pandemic. So it's the wrong signal. So you have to go across the value chain, solar, wind, hydrogen, very important, battery storage, energy efficiency. It's all needed in this uh, phase of development and to speed up the transition. And the director general told me during a briefing yesterday, we should be absolutely alarmed that emissions are shooting up uh, at the end of 2020 and at the beginning of this recovery, especially in China. Let's take a listen. We are going in the, in the, in the wrong direction. The uh, uh, pathway to, to, to 1.5 is narrowing. And uh, so this is the first message that we, we, we put very clearly. And then we put the question to the government you want to really go for the 1.5. These are the options that you have. And La Camera is saying there's no option but to see oil demand drop from 100 million barrels a day at its peak in 2019. He thinks we hit peak demand all the way down, Julie, listen to this number, to 20 to 25 million barrels by 2050. That'll be alarming to the oil producers in the world. Wow. Uh, so we're talking like 75% reduction in, in that Absolutely. kind of fossil fuel. Absolutely. Oh, that's um, mind-blowing and, yeah, terrifying to some of the oil producers in particular, I'm sure. John, in terms of these targets and what we're looking at, you've got to think post-pandemic spending has got to be key in sort of promoting spending on renewables rather than on fossil fuel consumption. How does the rejoining of the Paris Climate Accord by the Biden administration sort of factor into these targets and to hopes, perhaps, for a ramp-up in spending going forward? Well, it is the scale of the United States, Julia, which is very important here. And having uh, Joe Biden's capital behind it and uh, John Kerry's uh, climate change envoy. And it also comes in a very important year with COP26, uh, the global uh, climate conference taking place in Glasgow in November. So the timing's right, but you have to get all the top five emitters on the same page. I and mean, this is where the U.S. helps out. Uh, China, the United States, India, Russia, Japan. Those are the top five. Uh, can you get them to accelerate the, the process here is the key question. But just think of where we are now with Joe Biden and where we were in 2020 uh, with Donald Trump, a climate denier. So uh, La Camera of the arena said this is fantastic news. There's a push to do it. 
But still, Julia, you have to accelerate it. Most people don't think we're going to hit 1.5. I've been covering this now for the last three years, yeah. the transition. It is alarming, and that's why they're shouting from the rooftops, let's get on with it. Yeah, we need to accelerate it. And I guess to your point, firms in the United States said we'll carry on regardless, irrespective of what the government's saying, but we need governments on board, clearly. US, China, you name it. John Defteris, thank you so much for that. And speaking of China, Beijing doubling down its efforts to regulate the country's tech giants. Chinese President Xi Jinping calling for the acceleration of oversight of so-called platform companies. It's his first comments on the topic since December. Ivan Watson live in Hong Kong with all the details. Ivan, I, I read these comments and I thought if you are one of the biggest players in the space, so if you're a food delivery expert or a ride sharing, Diddy Chuck Singh, for example, oh boy, you've been given warning. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that Xi Jinping, his message to the the tech giants, to what state media described as the platform economy could be distilled to this regulation, regulation, regulation. He wants to tighten up the rules and protect, theoretically, consumers from from risks and things like that, uh, and also kind of clip the wings of a sector of the economy that has grown so rapidly that China has, has largely gone to, to a cash-free economy over the course of the last decade. Uh, This is just the latest in what have been kind of several months of warnings coming from Beijing, coming from Chinese regulators to uh, the, the private tech sector, warning against what they describe as monopolistic activity, saying they want more more regulation for this side of the economy. And then and then some real uh, action that we've seen on the ground, uh, notably with that IPO that was supposed to be the the world's biggest for for Ant Group that was kind of scrapped at the last minute. Uh, And then investigations into Alibaba, for example, for for, uh, alleged antitrust activities that was back in December. Uh, And some of these companies being called in to meet with regulators like Alibaba, ByteDance, Tencent, Baidu. Uh, The question then is, what is really behind this? Is this Beijing afraid, perhaps, that that this sector of the economy has just kind of grown out of control and, and does need some regulation to protect consumers uh, from per- potentially getting hurt? Uh, or could it also be just a need to control this increasingly powerful part of the private sector? And I do think if, if there's one characteristic one hallmark of Xi Jinping's period in power, it has been asserting control over different sides of Chinese society. Julia. Absolutely. I read from uh, the researcher eMarketer that online purchases will surpass 50% of the country's total retail sales this year. Alibaba, to your point, JD.com, Pinduoduo, some of the big players there. They are so powerful now. It's a recognition, I think, that something has to be done. Ivan, great to have you with us. Thank you so much. All right, here are some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Prince Philip is out of hospital following successful heart surgery earlier this month. The 99-year-old Duke of Edinburgh left the facility in London, where he's been recovering, and has just arrived back at Windsor Castle. Prince Philip is in, quote, good spirits, a royal source told CNN. Queen Elizabeth's husband was hospitalised in mid-February. 
U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says Washington and Tokyo will push back against China when needed. Blinken spoke after talks in Japan, where he's making his first foreign trip as Secretary of State. He said China can expect the pushback when it uses what he called coercion or aggression to get its way. And today is My Freedom Day, when CNN tries to raise awareness about modern-day slavery. It's a scourge affecting around 40 million people. And for the fifth year in a row, CNN asked young people around the world to take to social media and sign a pledge to fight back. We got responses from Indonesia to Italy and everywhere in between. Just take a listen. I will take into consideration of a company's business practices when buying things like clothes, chocolate, and electronics and then making my decisions on how they treat their workers and the environment. How about you? Take the pledge to help end modern-day slavery. I'm Raffaele from Taranto, Italy, and I'm signing my Freedom Day pledge. I'm Giulia from Grosseto, Italy, and I'm signing my Freedom Day pledge. I'm Greta in Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm signing the My Freedom Day pledge. Very sweet. Share your pledge to end modern day slavery on social media using the hashtag MyFreedomDay. And there's a special My Freedom Day global forum hosted by Becky Anderson, here from hundreds of students across five continents. That's Saturday at 12.30 in New York, 4.30 in London. All right, still to come on First Move Airlines, ready for takeoff as bookings boom. I speak to the head of the trade body for U.S. carriers to hear what's going on. Stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where the Dow and the S&P look set for a pretty flat open after their record runs. Tech futures pushing higher as bond yields behave. I see the tech stocks gaining some half a percent here, actually, so let's not underplay it. As we told you earlier, Wall Street firms are rushing to upgrade their outlooks for U.S. growth following the passage of the U.S. emergency aid bill. Morgan Stanley now sees the U.S. economy reaching pre-COVID levels as early as this quarter. BlackRock sees the U.S. in the middle of a restart, quote, rather than a recovery. It believes Wall Street is not sufficiently factoring in the economic rebound to come. And with the rising hopes for reopening rebounds, major airlines reporting strong bookings going into the traditional spring break period here in the United States. It also comes after President Biden signed a massive stimulus package that includes $14 billion for the airlines. But there are still concerns over fewer bookings from more lucrative business and overseas travelers. Joining us now, Nick Callio, he's the CEO of Airlines for America, a trade group representing the major U.S. carriers. Nick, great to have you on the show. Just set the scene for us. What are you seeing Uh, Julia, first, thanks for having me again. Uh, Right now, we're seeing some encouraging signs. You know, for the last year in general, we've been down flying about 40% of the people that we used to, which is much better than last April when it was about 3 or 4%. But bookings, uh, 
week over week the last three weeks have been going up. We're seeing more longer-term bookings as people look out towards the summer uh, and the fall. And as more people get vaccinated, people are feeling better. And we're seeing just basically a lot of pent-up demand. Uh, But underlying all that, the situation still is not very good. Uh, We're still burning $150 million in cash every single day. Wow. Just we'll talk about the financial burden for a second, but I just want to focus on in terms of the bookings, are they domestic travel? Are they international? What's the sort of breakdown of of how those bookings are playing out? They are domestic and they are leisure travel. Uh, International travel is way, way off um, down, you know, about 80 percent still better in some countries like the Central and Latin America. Uh, But the traditional high end uh, in Europe and Asia are way down still Um, with no sign of coming back. We've put some testing uh, protocols in place, hopefully to open up some of these markets. But, you know, you can't fly somewhere and then quarantine for four days, 14 days. Um, So it's going to be mostly leisure travel. We're ready for that, hopefully. Uh, And we are hoping that business travel will come back sooner than one would normally expect. Let's pick up on the cash burn situation, $150 million a day, Nick. When are we looking at break even based on the pickup in activity that you're talking about? I know it's a sort of finger in the wind estimate, but can you give me it? Yeah, it, it is. You know, the one thing we've learned, Julia, throughout all of this is we can plan, but we can't really <laughs> forecast. And so we are planning for increased travel uh, and having the seats available uh, over the summer. It's a little bit of a gamble because if people are going to fly, you need to have the seats available. If they don't fly, then you're flying empty planes, which we have been. So, you know, we're hoping that by sometime later this year, we can hit break even. Uh, that takes about 65 to 70 percent of the people we used to fly starting to fly again. Should vaccinated travelers be free to travel in your mind without the quarantines that you just mentioned, which for many travelers are prohibitive? Would you like to see the CDC, the U.S. government, ease up perhaps on some of the restrictions? Because there are those that are criticizing and saying until people can travel freely, if they've been vaccinated in particular, um, we're not going to see that sharp recovery that people are hoping for. We think there should be consideration. The CDC has its job. Um, The WHO is taking a slightly different tack. Uh, But when people are vaccinated, they ought to be able to somewhat resume uh, the life they lived before. As a George Washington professor recently pointed out, you know, if you don't allow people some kind of freedom when they are vaccinated um, and safe from infection, uh, there's going to be a disincentive to some people uh, to get vaccinated. Where do you stand on vaccine passports? Just a a card saying, hey, I've been vaccinated. Let me travel. Because we are risking a dual society of those that haven't yet been vaccinated and and those that have. Well, we've been pushing both testing and vaccination. And we believe there ought to be a digital passport and that the U.S. government ought to take the lead in developing these. A number of private sector companies are developing these where, you know, you've got it on your cell phone um, and you've got a UR, uh, UR code um, and that you just flash it. It comes up, it protects your medical information. We think as a temporary measure, this would help facilitate travel. It would lead to the rest- you know, end of some of the restrictions and the quarantines, uh, and that would open up travel in the economy. You know, so we've got two problems. We've got the pandemic on the one side, and then we've got a very sick economy on the other side that's getting better, but we can make it get better quicker if we facilitate 
people being able to start in their normal lives. You're clearly lobbying the government for this. What are you hearing back? Because it's something that the Europeans are already working on. The Europeans are working on it, as are countries in Asia, um, Israel, and other places. Uh, Our government is looking and working with the WHO at this point, so we're hopeful. Uh, because it be, it's fairly easy to implement. The technology is there. Um, it's safer. And, you know, you mentioned those little white cards. That's not a 21st century solution, passing these cards around, you know, that you show that you've been vaccinated or that you've been tested. Much better to have it on your phone. You hold the information and it's not floating out there. It's less easy to fake it, perhaps, as well, which is another concern. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things. Go well, we come up with principles. It's got to be verifiable, um, it's got to be accurate, and it's got to be safe for the passenger. Nick, let's fast forward because we have spoken about, and I mentioned it in the introduction, that we, the airline industry's got more financial support from the latest stimulus bill in the United States. Do you think it's going to be enough? Again, I'm going back to these predictions and forecasts that are difficult to, to, to see at this stage, but do you think it gets you to the point where the airlines are breaking even and we see some kind of recovery? Or do you think, if you're honest, that more support is going to be needed? Uh, We certainly hope that more support is not, we hope that we will not need more support. Um, I don't believe that we will. Uh, If the forecasts keep the way they are, if the vaccinations keep going, we think there'll be a pickup to the point where we can we can sustain ourselves. We've taken a lot of self-help measures already um, and are in pretty good financial shape, although we have a lot of debt, to be honest. Uh, but uh, the CARES Act and the payroll support program that the government has provided were a lifeline that kept our frontline employees uh, kind of on the, on the job and um, in shape, I guess I would say. As you know, Julia, airline employees have to go through a constant process of training and recertification. They just can't be laid off for two months and get back on the job, you know, on any particular Monday or Friday. A uh, pilot can't be thrown the keys and say, take, you know, let's get this airplane off the ground. Mm-hmm. So it's been a very good thing. As a result of the government uh, and us acting basically as an employment agency for the government, um, or a non-employment agency, um, our employees are there and they're ready if demand picks up. Very significant. Yeah, super important. Nick, great to have you on as always. Nick Hallio, the CEO of Airlines for America Thank there. Thank you. Thank you. All right, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Your stocks are up and running this Tuesday and we are higher. On Wall Street, tech's the big winner in early trade after Monday's 1% Nasdaq jump. The Dow opening relatively unchanged at this stage after its fourth straight record close. Plenty of time ahead in this session, though, to see what happens. The U.S. reporting that retail sales fell 3% last month. A bit of a disappointment due in part to bad winter weather. Remember that historic Texas freeze? But sales numbers are sure to get a boost as millions of Americans receive $1,400 in fresh economic aid over the next few weeks. U.S. financial firms, meanwhile, are busy upgrading their growth forecasts due to that fresh economic support. The Fed is expected to upgrade its outlook, too, during a two-day policy meeting that begins today. So we'll be talking about that later this week. But in the meantime... One person's trash is another's treasure. That's the old adage. And increasing numbers are doing just that to boost their incomes during the pandemic. eBay 
say 72% of its consumer-to-consumer sellers turned to the marketplace as an extra income stream. Most found things to sell at home that they don't need anymore, but the amount of clutter does vary from country to country. eBay says the value of your spare second-hand stuff depends on where you live. Canadians have, on average, nearly $6,000 worth of surplus items. In Europe, it's much less. Jamie Ainoni is eBay CEO and he joins us now. Jamie, great to have you with us. I love this report. Um, I know it's your first re-commerce report that you, um, you produced, but I think that was the key finding. People were looking around their homes, selling secondhand goods, and they were doing it to, to bring in more money. That's right. eBay was really the pioneer of the circular economy or re-commerce. Uh, people taking used goods that they have around the home. As you mentioned, you know, the average consumer has about $4,000 of items that they could sell online, and less than 20% of that is actually online. So a huge opportunity to bring more of that um, online. And instead of going to the landfill, really helping the planet uh, and selling that to somebody else is a, is a great opportunity. It's what eBay was founded on. In fact, the first item sold on eBay was a broken laser printer, uh, and that was 25 years ago. <laughs> a broken laser printer. That's right. And someone bought it. I guess that's and what makes a marketplace. And, you know, <laughs> still today, we, people refurbish musical instruments. Uh, there's a student who refurbishes musical instrument. I just met him, uh, and he resells that online to make extra money. Uh, people resell their clothing online. Um, I've taken a, a computer bag that I had, a laptop bag, and sold it on eBay and said 100% of the proceeds go to charity. And so in this case, I won because the money went to charity. The buyer felt great because he got a, a used pre-loved bag. The charity won and the planet won because that bag didn't go into the uh, landfill. It's, it's a great story. Um, the geographical differences as well sort of amused me. Those that had a lot of stuff in their houses in places like the United States, perhaps more so in the UK versus those like the Germans, perhaps, that didn't have quite so much stuff in their house that they could sell. Yeah, I don't know what it is culturally about different geographies. <laughs> Decluttering. As we saw the it, yeah, it, was, it, was, it was pretty interesting to see, but it's pretty universal. You know, really, eBay is located across the world. And across the world, we see this opportunity where uh, eBay is the place that people turn to to sell their goods online. Uh, we were really built on the principle that it's economic opportunity for all, that a brand new person can bring their used good and sell right along a, a larger seller. And that's one of the beauties of the eBay marketplace. And so who's selling predominantly and what are they selling? Because when I think of eBay, I think of things like clothes and, you know, just general things that you could sell. But actually, when I was looking into the details of this report, it's technology, electronics, cell phones, computers, video consoles. There's a real tech feel to to what you're doing amongst everything else that, that gets put for sale on there. Absolutely. From motor parts to collectibles to trading cards to sporting equipments to musical instruments. One of the beauties is the breadth of eBay. You know, we did close to $100 billion of business. Uh, last year, it was $14 billion than the year before. Uh, and that's 18 million sellers across the world selling to over 185 million buyers. So it really is just about anything that you can think of is being sold on eBay. Um, and that's really the delight is the, just the discovery of what you can find on this amazing marketplace. And eBay's really in it for our sellers. We only win when our sellers win. We don't compete with our sellers. So really our, helping our sellers thrive, we made it so much easier to list on the marketplace uh, to bring your items, get them up there quickly uh, and sell them to, uh, to, a, to a buyer. 
I mean, you had a record year in, in 2020. What's 2021 going to bring and where's the focus going to be? Because I saw a lot of talk about the focus remaining on uh, non-new in-season and these products that you bring on, in many cases now authenticating, because that was one of the big criticisms, I think, at the beginning and in earlier years. How do you authenticate some of the products that, that are on there and make sure that you're not buying fake? You're hot on this with certain products in particular. Absolutely. You know, last year we added over 11 million new buyers, so a lot of momentum in the business. Um, but we launched some new features too in our sneakers business. We're now authenticating every sneakers over $100. Uh, we're authenticating watches and over 10,000 that actually goes into escrow. So we're building new capabilities into the platform and take sneakers, for example, that business is now growing triple digits. People are really loving the resale of sneakers on eBay. The authentication is very fun. It comes with an NFC tag. You can hold your phone up to it uh, and see the sneaker that you bought. So really engaging the customer in a totally different way on eBay. And these have been worn, these sneakers. Uh, yes, yeah, some are new, some are pre-sold. So there's a lot of new, there's a lot of used, there's pre-loved. Um, we actually do a great business in certified refurbish. So we're selling right. like new product on the on the platform with a two-year warranty, 30-day hassle-free returns, and eBay money-back guarantee. So it's like new, except at a credible value. Another example of great sustainability for the planet is certified refurb. Instead of that going to a landfill, it's coming back to a to a new buyer who's really happy they're getting a like new product. How much do people spend on average? Well, you know, take the sneakers buyer that comes in. We really attract a, a Gen Z, a younger demographic mm. there. And there, when they come in, they spend $2,500 on the platform. But what's great about eBay is that they spend it across categories. So only 500 of that is in sneakers. The other 2,000 is categories across the board, whether that be apparel or sporting goods uh, or some other category. What do you offer relative to, particularly for some of these um, products that require certification or authentication versus a Poshmark or a, a real real where we're talking about these expensive products. What does eBay have that they don't? Yeah, nobody has the breadth, the scale, the technology, the global reach or the footprint that we do. So when you think about where you can list your items, you want to maximize the price that you can get for them. So you're going to go to the marketplace that has global reach, that has 185 million different buyers on the platform, and that's really easy to list. Once you set up your account, we now have a new managed payments where it's one uh -huh. integrated account and payments on the same file, on the same account. So that makes it much easier to list. And you can start listing across the category. So you could literally just look uh, across your house and say, wow, I could list this, I could list this. You know, you take something that's cluttering. How do I declutter? Well, you put it up on eBay. And what's great about eBay is the person-to-person -person connection. You know, when I sold that laptop computer bag uh, to the buyer, he wrote me and I said, look, this isn't real leather. Are you sure you want this bag at this price point? Because he bid it up to quite a bit. And he said, yeah, it's going to charity and I need a bag like that. I don't really care that it's pre-loved. So you get a happy buyer on the other side of the transaction too. And that's really fantastic. To your point, I mean, your consumer-to-consumer -consumer business is outgrowing the business-to-consumer Absolutely. It's a key focus for us this year is really focusing on the C2C. It is growing faster than our than our business consumer business, uh, than our B2C business, which is also growing really healthily, but really making it easy for people to come on the platform, list in a few minutes. Uh, we're working on completely different selling tools to make it easy for them and really leaning into categories like sneakers, watches and those collectible areas that are that are really powerful to people to bring bring items onto the marketplace. And with the managed payments product where people give you their bank account details, you manage that part. I know you've got sort of partnerships with the likes of UPS, with FedEx, with the US Postal Service here in the United States. Is it more 
um, is it easier to monetize those relationships perhaps than charging people up front for cost of listings? It's actually more lucrative for the business too, surely, even as consumers buy a seller's benefit. You know, what we're trying to do is just make it easier to list on the product with those partnerships. So now you have UPS, FedEx, or the United States Postal Service in the US. We did the same thing with Royal Mail, with Australia Post. So it's really easy to get there and list your products and ship them out. We print the shipping labels for you. It's all automatically calculated. So we make it very easy for the seller to uh, to list their items. You know, the benefit of the managed payments is that once you come on, you put one payment on file and it's really seamless now. You don't have to go set up a separate account. And what we find is that when our sellers move to the new eBay managed payments, they're much happier. It's a 10 point higher customer satisfaction than ones that haven't moved. Uh, and that's really fantastic. It shows that they love the ease and convenience of have, having everything all in one place. So we're excited about that rollout. It'll be complete by the end of this year. And going forward next year, everybody will be on the eBay managed payments and, and a really frictionless experience. Yeah, and I guess it makes sellers buyers and buyers sellers as well, which is always um, healthy if you can cross-pollinate. Jamie, great to have you on the show. Come back soon and talk to us. How are you doing? And um, congratulations on a great year. Thanks Stay for having me on. Of eBay there. Thank you. Okay, we're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move with an update on the briefing by the European Medicines Agency on the AstraZeneca vaccine. The agency's director says she still believes the benefits outweigh the risks of side effects. Fred Pleitgen is back with us. Fred, they've said this before. What more came up in that briefing? What was interesting, uh, Julia, because they said that, of course, they're going to take a look at all the reports that they're getting from the various EU member states about these incidences of of blood clots apparently occurring after people took the AstraZeneca vaccine, but they say, Emer Cook, who's the head of the uh, European Medicines Agency, is saying that for the time being right now, especially since the cases of this blood clotting have still been fairly rare, they still do believe, as you said, that the benefits still outweigh the risks. Let's listen into some of what she had to say. While the investigation is ongoing, we are currently, we are still firmly convinced that the benefits of the AstraZeneca vaccine in preventing COVID-19 with its associated risk of hospitalization and death outweigh the risk of these side effects. In the meantime, anyone who has received the vaccine and has any concerns should contact their appropriate healthcare professional. That also, by the way, mirrors one of the things that that the German medicines regulator said yesterday, that people who did take the AstraZeneca vaccine, if they did feel that they have any side effects, like, for instance, uh, bad headaches and, uh, and bleeding, that they should then obviously contact their physician to see uh, what exactly is going on there. But I think one of the other interesting things, Julia, that I heard in that press uh, briefing there from uh, Emer Cook is that she said that while the trials were going on for some of the vaccines that, of course, some of them are now approved uh, within uh, the European Union, that even in the placebo groups of those vaccine trials, there were, of course, some people who developed blood clots. So those were people who hadn't actually taken the vaccine, but had taken a placebo. And so I think one of the points that the EMA is trying to make there, the uh, European Medicines Agency, is that blood clots, unfortunately, are something that happens in society that, that, that is not a regular occurrence, but that does tend to happen uh, in uh, some people in society, whether or not they take a vaccine. And so one of the things that AstraZeneca, of course, has said is that they don't believe that the incidence of blood clots uh, occurring is higher in people taking the AstraZeneca vaccine than in the general population. 
But of course, right now, the European Medicines Agency is saying they are going to look at all these reports and be absolutely certain that the product that we're dealing with here is safe for Europeans to take, Julie. It's fascinating, Fred, because obviously I heard that for the first time. And what I heard and, and maybe I clearly misheard based on what you said was while the investigation is ongoing. So I and I want to just point our viewers to that. We are expecting, I still believe, the agency to come forward with results of their investigation on Thursday this week. Do you, can we still expect that? Because I feel like for European nations that at least for now have suspended use of the vaccine in light of these comments, they will still wait until we get the results of, of, of the investigation that the, the agency yeah, is certainly. carrying out. Yeah, yeah they, they certainly will. I mean, the, the European countries are, are certainly waiting uh, to hear on Thursday what exactly uh, the EMA is going to say. But it, what uh, Emer Cook said uh, today is that they're going to look at all the, the reports that they're getting, the reports that are coming in. They're obviously going to hear specialists as well, internal as well as external specialists. And then on Thursday, they're going to have some key meetings within the European Medicines Agency and then come with a result about whether or not they think that this vaccine is safe for Europeans to take, Julia. Yeah, absolutely. Fred, thank you for watching that for us. Fred Plankton there. Thank you. All right, you're watching First Move. More to come. As we mentioned earlier in the program, today is my Freedom Day. For the fifth straight year, CNN is partnering with young people worldwide for a student-led day of action against modern-day slavery. These students in Kosovo are pledging to change the world. Me too. I want to be astronaut. I want to be the police. Dr. Martin Luther King is my adult because he defended freedom. Freedom is a choice to follow our dreams. And CNN's Christy Lustout spoke to students across Asia about their efforts to spread awareness too. Say hello to Asia's next generation of freedom fighters. We are excited to have with us scores of students joining us via video chat from schools across Asia. We got Hong Kong, Tokyo, Seoul, Bangkok, and Noida in India. Joining us, we have two modern-day abolitionists who are based here in Asia. We as human beings buy things, and a certain percentage of what we buy is tainted by modern slavery. We don't know which items are tainted, but the relevance of this is that kind of like global warming, it's kind of like the carbon footprint. It demonstrates that we are part of the issue. And as a result of that, we also have to be part of the solution. What's even more surprising is that businesses and brands themselves also have a hard time knowing this information. We need to learn more about the journey and uh, stories of migrant workers themselves and hear about their experiences because that's also what's going to change uh, people's minds and hearts and attention to this issue. Let's open it up to Q&A. To all of you out there, this is your chance, your chance to raise a question. Do victims of human trafficking self-identify as a victim of a crime? Are many people that I've met who are victims of human trafficking don't even realize that they are victims of anything. They just realize that they are in this bad circumstance. They're being threatened. They made choices. The choices resulted in them being there. And they're often surprised if you go and say you want to help them. What role does education play in alleviating this issue? 
when people are aware what it, ta- it takes to get the products we have, um, we're going to want our brands to hold themselves accountable to better standards. What are the some ways that we as students can um, highlight the issues that are pertaining to human trafficking so that the government is compelled to take action and not ignore them? And there's a point at which we as human beings just have to say enough is enough. We have to step up. We have to take a stand. And it's often students that lead this. This is what is going to bring the change about. And that's why this day is so important. What are some ways we can make people and motivate them to be more conscious about their spending habits? You choose something because of the stories behind um, that product. Um, And if you think about the fish you ate uh, was caught by someone on a slave boat, um, I think it would become much less appetizing. Um, If you could buy something that was ethically made, wouldn't you love that more? Victoria, thank you. Okay, everyone, now is the time to decide on a solution. What is the best way to convince the largest number of people to commit to stopping forced labor? There's no right or wrong answer here. The poll result is in. Become more aware of how goods are made and take into consideration a company's business practices before making a purchase. That's going to be part of the action plan from Asia. It's going to contribute to the 2021 Freedom Pledge that's going to be available online for students and educators around the world to sign. So let's continue to work together to deliver the freedom for people across the world and across here in the Asia Pacific region. And you can make it a pledge too. Let's end modern day slavery and celebrate freedom. Sign the pledge and nominate your friends to do the same. Share your pledge on social media, please, using the hashtag MyFreedomDay. All right, one last look at the markets before we go. We've got a mostly higher open uh, for Wall Street, as you can see. A so-called reflation trade rest perhaps going on. The tech is the big S&P winner. As you can see, the Nasdaq up some six-tenths of 1% too. We're also seeing some profit-taking in recent gainers, energy and financial stocks. But remember, fund managers surveyed by Bank of America see big gains for those sectors in the future. Their survey entitled, It's Over now see inflation and a pullback in Fed economic support as the biggest risk to stocks and not COVID. It may be over for Wall Street. It isn't over for the real world. But that's it for the show for now. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they'll be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for, search for at CNN. And in the meantime, stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.